welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Uh, well, my name is Jenna. I am an intern here at Awaken. Uh, filling in for Micah this morning. Him and the girls are out east coast. Uh, I think they're doing like an educational tour of American history, more or less. Uh, so they're having a great time via Facebook, from what I can tell. Um, and I actually have the privilege of starting a new series this morning. So we are beginning a series called Sequitur, uh, which maybe is, it's not as weird as it sounds, I would say, it just is Latin, uh, meaning implication, or uh, the idea is a logical conclusion that flows from the premise. So last week, if you noticed, it was Easter, and what we want to do over these next six weeks is to teach around six logical conclusions um, that flow from the premise of Easter. So in other words, uh, as people who gather and who seek to follow this Jesus uh, that we believe was God incarnate and that revealed the fullness of God to humanity, and through his life, death, and resurrection, something happened. Um, what are the implications or logical conclusions of following this Jesus? So that's what we're going to be doing. Um, if I were to ask you, why did Jesus die for your sins? What would you say? Love? Good. That's a great answer, actually. Uh, what else? To redeem us. What else? Substitution. Substitution. Forgiveness of sin. So this morning we are going to be talking about forgiveness. Um, I grew up in church. I was saved at five years old and then again at ten, just to be safe. Um, <laughs> I went forward at a Billy Graham crusade and a kind woman named Maureen prayed with me. I still, like, she gave me a little booklet, and I remember seeing Maureen and her phone number. I think I, I actually did call her one time <laughs> because I got in a fight with my friend, and I thought Maureen was the one <laughs> that I should talk to. I have a memory of that. It's weird. Um, so anyways, here I am praying with Maureen, and she said, if you would like to accept Jesus into your heart, um, you have to pray for God to forgive you. And I was like, yeah, good, let's do that. Um, and, and I really do, I don't want to, I believe that that was a genuine moment um, that God was inviting 10-year-old Jenna into, um, and that I was receiving something uh, and, and knowing God in a way that I hadn't known God before. And it's also kind of funny, um, because if you knew 10-year-old Jenna, which most of you don't, um, girlfriend was a rule follower. <laughs> I, I was the kid who would be like, mm, I'm not so sure we should be doing that, you guys. We might get in trouble. So why don't we just go back and read? <laughs> um, so a lot, a lot of anxiety around doing the rules. And it's funny because... I, like as I've gotten older, um, this idea of forgiveness sort of has expanded and, and broadened for me. Um, but I think for a lot of us, we sort of think of it as like, 
I did a bad thing, and then I have to ask God for forgiveness. And then it's done. Um, forgiveness is so central to the Christian understanding of who God is and what it means to be in relationship with God. And I just wonder if maybe it's bigger than that. Um, so the question that we are going to be answering today, um, as it relates to implication, what does it mean to be a people that is forgiven? So if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, if you want to open them to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10, it'll be on the screen for you heathens who didn't bring your Bible. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Um, if you want to stand for a reading of the word this morning. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Pray with me. God in a story that seems so familiar to many of us, where we repent and you forgive us of our sins. Um, it's a good story. It's a good reality that you have given us. And I wonder if you could maybe show us more about what that means. God, thank you that we are able to gather here and I ask that we would be fully present to the ways that you are waking us up to what you are doing in our lives and in the world. In your name we pray. Amen. So this passage is literally plucked out of the middle of Paul's argument. Um, if you did notice, there's usually a break in your Bibles between three and four. Um, in Greek... There actually is not punctuation. So that's the language that, that the New Testament was written in. And there's no punctuation. So verses 3 to 14 is actually just one long run-on sentence. And each proposition is building upon God's work in Christ. Um, and right in the middle of it is this idea of forgiveness. So to bring us up to speed... Um, 3 to 14, uh, it's a doxology, or like a praise or blessing, um, and it's this long theological complex discussion in which Paul is outlining God's work in Christ. So at Awaken, when we do our doxology at the end of the service, it's like, grace and peace, <laughs> have a good day. And Paul is like, in him, from the beginning of creation, he was born and just goes on and on and on and on and on. So, but it's a fascinating, fascinating praise, and this is how he opens his letter. He begins literally with, blessed is the God that blesses us in Christ. And he continues on in his prayer and blessing and says, uh, the people of God have been chosen and predestined and adopted. And so you can hear this relational and intentional 
um, communication of, of what it means to be the people of God that, that we have been chosen. Um, he says that the mystery of God's will has been revealed, meaning that like until Jesus, things were hidden and something has happened in the revelation of this Jesus. And in the right time, there is going to be unity of all things in heaven and on earth in this man. And then it comes to forgiveness, our set of passages. We are redeemed through the forgiveness of sin, and grace is lavished upon us. So it's grace that is this vehicle, and it manifests itself in the forgiveness of sins. So can I be real, just for a moment here? Um, I've been thinking about forgiveness for a really long time. Like, what are the theological implications? <laughs> Does anyone else ever ask those questions? <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, and as I was uh, doing this sermon and, and trying to figure out what needs to be said, this question kept coming up in me uh, that I feel like I've, I've had, but I've never actually taken time to engage. And it's this. Why do I need to be forgiven? Why do I need to be forgiven to be in relationship with God? Because, okay, sure, the behavioral stuff, we think of sin as like the bad stuff you do, so sure, forgiveness. But I don't know, I, I was just thinking about 10-year-old Jenna. She didn't have that long list. So what was she receiving in that moment? What was she being forgiven for? So there's, there's other part of the story. Um, our friends Adam and Eve <laughs> in the garden, uh, they did what God told them not to do. Uh, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they screwed it up for the rest of us. Thanks a lot. And so Augustine uh, calls this original sin. And when we are born into this world, we have inherited original sin and so we need to be forgiven for it. Next question. Okay. I didn't ask to be born. I didn't ask to be here. Why am I being held accountable for something that I didn't even do? Like, what if I was the one in the garden? Because I was a rule follower. And like, I could have avoided <laughs> this whole thing. Why am I being held accountable for something that I didn't do? And it just, it didn't feel like enough to say, well, original sin, Jenna. <laughs> Surprised you didn't know that, thought you were in seminary. <laughs> but I would like to propose an answer to that question. And to do that, I would like to look at Genesis 1 through 3. So if you do have your Bibles, um, go ahead and open those up to fact check me. Um, I would say one of the most prominent themes in Genesis 1 through 3 is that creation is inherently relational. And so the sun and the moon and the stars and the land and humans and animals and God... Um, 
they all relate to each other. They are all in relationship with one another. And so the land produces vegetation so that the animals can eat. And the sun and moon, they provide not only light and dark, but also time for humans and seasons. And it's this triune God that has created this system that all relates. Um, and then the narrative gets to humans. So in 126, it says, let us make humankind in our image with the intent that, that it would be the humans who would steward this creation. Um, so a lot of people think a lot of different things about what that plural was. Uh, let us create humans in our image. Um, so in Socratic study, if you have been uh, following that, how we have been reading that plural um, is God referring to himself in a plural way. So, Christians, we believe in a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So we've been reading that passage as the Trinity being present at creation. Um, it's this triune God that creates humanity. And in verse 27, uh, humans are created in the image of God. So this is called the Imago Dei. It's one of the most important passages as it relates to human identity. Um, and it's this idea that humans are made in the image of God. Uh, it, it makes humans distinct from the rest of creation, and it highlights this unique relationship that humans have to God because they are God-bearers. So, although all of creation is relational, it's humans that have this special thing that, that we were made out of this desire and delight of this outpouring of a triune God, and we were created not out of need or deficiency, but out of love and care to participate and steward creation. And you contrast this with the creation stories of the day, where humans are created out of war in the heavens, out of fighting gods, and human beings are the product and result, and their existence is to be slaves to the gods. But this creation story says that a god made a human, and they were called very good. It's a lovely thing. So God gets Adam all set up in his new home, the Garden of Delight. <laughs> that is what Eden means, delight, so <laughs> that. Um, and he tells him, you can eat from any tree. What's mine is yours, but do not eat from the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil. The rest is fair game, but that one, no. And then woman is created, and they're all just hanging out, uh, naked and unashamed, and... Uh, in really in fellowship with each other and with God and creation, and it's this beautiful image. Uh, and then the narrative changes. So in 3, 1, the serpent enters. In four little words, a new seed is planted in the garden. Did God really say? So the serpent approaches Eve and says, did God really say that you must not eat from the tree? And Eve is like, 
Uh, yeah, pretty sure that's what he said. Uh, otherwise, we're going to die. That's the direct translation of what God told us. And the serpent responds with this. You will surely not die. God knows that when you eat from the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the fruit looked good and she ate it. She gave it to her husband and they ate it together. What just happened? In those four words, did God really say? Doubt entered the creation story. And not just any type of doubt, a doubt of God's goodness. Has he withheld something from us? Is he really as good as he says he is? Has he given me everything I need? Why can't I know what he knows? He must be withholding, so yes, I will eat from that tree. And we do that because we don't trust him. That, I think, is what is behind the act, is a lack of trust. It's to answer the questions previously posed with a yes, he is withholding. No, he has not given me everything I need. And if you just think about relationship for a moment, what does a lack of trust produce in relationship? I think it usually looks like this. I'll do it myself because I don't trust you to come through for me. I will withhold information because I don't trust that you will honor what I told you. Distrust eats away at the foundation of a relationship until you can't recognize one another. And I think it happened in the garden. So they eat, and all of a sudden, they see that they're naked. And they cover themselves in shame, and they hide. And this unique relationship that humans are in with God seems to be broken. And we can't go back. What's done is done. Broken trust seems to do that to relationship. So what if, more than behavior, that Adam and Eve ate this thing, what if the problem was that trust was broken? And so when we look at Genesis 1 through 3, what if it's true not because of how God decided to create the world? This passage is often used to, um, well, you're in this culture, the science wars. Um, but what if Genesis is not even trying to answer that question? What if what Genesis is trying to do is to say why creation is here? And what if the problem is that it's trust? What if Genesis 1 through 3 is describing what it means to be a human being? 
that as image bearers of an infinite God, we are made to be in relationship with God and one another and with creation. And that relationship is broken. And to be born into this world means that we are born into a place where relationship and trust is just not a given, it's broken. What if to be human means that we need a God who would do something about it? A God that's not okay with a relationship being broken and who will go to great lengths to restore it. So as we move to the rest of the biblical narrative, if we're, if we're looking at Genesis 1 through 3 in a relational lens and we can see that relationally something has been broken, um, it's amazing what the Old Testament looks like through that lens. So everything from uh, the covenants that God makes with people, the law, um, the monarchy, uh, Israel, the prophets, it all seeks to, to work towards restoring this relationship. So in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 4, uh, there's this passage that's referred to as the new covenant. And so it's this uh, passage that's pointing forward to basically Jesus, who, who this Messiah is and what the new covenant would be. And it says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Did you hear how relational that was? And did you hear how it ended? With forgiveness. Forgiveness, it seems, did not start with Jesus. It seems that it was needed from the beginning. Forgiveness is inherently relational. It doesn't happen without relationship, and it's only needed when relationship is broken. So when we come back to our Ephesians passage where we first started, Paul is saying, in Christ. It wasn't like back in the garden, God was like, shoot, the humans screwed up. What are we going to do? And Jesus says, I got this. <laughs> Paul is saying from the very beginning, day one, plan of creation is that restoration and forgiveness and, and rebuilt trust happens in Jesus. That is what he's saying in this passage. He is the one that gives forgiveness and it restores and it unifies all things. So my question, why do I need to be forgiven? Because it wasn't me, which is maybe telling of my rule-following tendencies that I haven't left. <laughs> I've toned it down. I don't usually say, guys, we're going to get in trouble anymore. Um, but that question... 
I don't know that I fully understood. Um, yeah, I didn't choose to be born. But someone did choose for me to be born. And someone chose for you to be born. And we all came from a relationship. And whether that relationship was really broken and dysfunctional and, and you're here, uh, or it was a healthy and trusting good relationship, we are in a world where relationship is broken and trust is broken and it's just not a given. And that's an underwhelming conclusion that it's just the way it is. And yeah, it is. And there's hope because there is a God who fixed it. And there is a God who has restored relationship and given trust back. And it's a beautiful and lovely thing. So I said in the beginning that I was going to answer this question. What does it mean to be a people that is forgiven? What does it mean to be a people that is in restored and trusting relationship with the one who created us? Um, I wonder if being a forgiven people means that we are quick to forgive. And I wonder for some of you who just heard me say that, those of you who have maybe been deeply wronged before, those of you who maybe have had to do the grueling work of forgiveness, I wonder if some defiance rose up in you a little bit when you heard me say, let's be quick to forgive. Because here's the thing. To forgive someone feels like you're letting them off the hook. To forgive someone means that you are acting like what happened didn't happen it's not fair. It's not just. You're suffering because of what they did. And to forgive them would just let them be free. They don't deserve to be free because I'm not free. I think that's how it feels. To offer forgiveness to someone who does not deserve it. To you, I would say yes. Uh, as we transition here to talk about what it means to be a human being forgiving another human being, I want to make a distinction. Uh, what we have been talking about is about how God uh, restores relationship and forgiveness, and we're back, and trust is good. Uh, and I think sometimes when, when we think about forgiving others, especially if you have that understanding of what forgiveness is and you've received forgiveness— I think it's sort of, we just think we can transfer that way of thinking. We're like, yep, I forgive you, let's be friends. And where that's always the goal of forgiveness, I would say, uh, restored relationship is ideal, and it's not always appropriate. Some relationships are dangerous. Some relationships are toxic, and some relationships have no business being restored. If you are being abused, get out. So I want to say that up front um, because I don't want there to be any confusion about that as we transition here to talk about some of the nuances of human and human forgiveness. 
So what I would say, though, um, forgiveness is such a huge topic, and there's a lot we can say, and I really hope, I'm going to say two things about it. And what I hope is that this starts a conversation for you, that it starts a process for you. Um, so to be a people that is forgiven, who are open and willing to forgive others who have wronged us, number one, I would say, it means that we remember what happened. It means that we don't sweep things under the rug and act like it didn't happen. I mentioned earlier that forgiveness is only a thing in relationship. Well, forgiveness also is only at play when you've been wronged, or when something hurts, or when trust was broken. That's the only time forgiveness shows up. To do that, it has to be remembered. So we like to say forgive and forget, um, and I think a com common understanding is like, you forgive, you're good, and then you act like it didn't happen. I, it's just dumb. That's a dumb thing. Um, if we're understanding forgetting like that, yeah. But I wonder if we can understand that differently. What if the idea of forgive and forget just means that the memory has been healed? Forgetting can only happen when something is remembered rightly, though. Forgetting just means that the past has been healed and remembered in a different way and that you're not limping and walking around with these bleeding wounds. But to get there, you have to remember. Sometimes in that remembering uh, people who have wronged you or hurt you or... Um, and not even individually, but just any time you see injustice happen. Um, there's a process, and it usually involves quite a bit of emotion, uh, characterized by anger, I would say. And if you grew up in church, you know that anger is a sin. <laughs> so uh, you got you got to just stop feeling the anger. Um, I would say it's a part of the forgiveness process. Anger has to be there. Um, so one of the things that I have done in preparation for today, I read this book uh, called Exclusion and Embrace. Um, it's by a man named Miroslav Volf. <laughs> Great name. Uh, and it's probably one of my favorite books I've ever read. Uh, he talks about the forgiveness process and uh, he uses the metaphor of embrace. And one of the sections of his book, he's talking about anger in the forgiveness process. And I wanted to share just a quote uh, with you. It, it's a little intense, um, but I think it, it, it rightly captures um, that process here. So, for followers of the crucified Messiah, the main message of the imprecatory psalms, so he uses the psalms to... Um, highlight the anger that can come out, uh, is this. Rage belongs before God. Not in the reflectively managed and manicured form of a confession, but as a pre-reflective outburst from the depths of the soul. 
much more significantly, by placing unattended rage before God, we place both our unjust enemy and our own vengeful self face to face with a God who loves and does justice. Man. Anger has a place, and it has a place before God. So I think this other thing happens. So you're trying to forgive, and you're really angry, and you're remembering, and you get in this cycle of being triggered, and you remember, and you're angry, and you hate, and this never-ending emotional thing, and it, it comes out in sideways. Um, I think this is, people talk about how victims of hurt oftentimes become perpetrators. I think when we stay there, that's where that's possible. And so what point does forgiveness happen when you're remembering and you're angry? So I have this, this friend, um, who I think perfectly captures the second thing I would like to say about forgiveness. You have to want to forgive. Want and desire is what pushes forgiveness forward. We forgive when we want to be healed. And so it's almost like you have to get to this place where you are tired and you are done being angry. That to hold the thing that is, that is creating this anger and frustration, to hold it the same way tomorrow that you're holding it right now would kill you. You have to be done. So my friend Marcel, uh, I work with Marcel. I work in a call center. And he, I don't know how we ever became friends, but he's one of the most fantastic human beings in the world. And he'll oftentimes come up to me, and he, he's from Africa, and French is his first language. So he just has this beautiful, if he could just read me a bedtime story every night, I feel like I would sleep so well. Um, he's just, he's a fantastic human being, and uh, he'll come up to my cube, and oftentimes we'll talk about life and check in and faith or how he, spirituality, <laughs> that's, that's how Marcel talks about it. Um, I've had a lot of great conversations with him, and the other day he came up to me and said, Jenna, something happened. And I was like, what? <laughs> what happened, Marcel? And he looked at me and he said, I forgave my father. And I said, whoa, okay, that's a big deal. Um, you should tell me about it because I'm preaching a sermon on forgiveness. <laughs> and uh, so last Sunday, he recorded himself speaking uh, and telling me this story. And he didn't tell me the details of what needed to be forgiven. Um, we can use our imaginations, especially when it's a wound from a parent. Uh, but he talked about this moment that he got to. So years and years and years, he's been holding this anger, and his siblings would come up to him and say, Marcel, it's time. Move on. It's time to forgive. Uh, 
<laughs> this is what he said, and I just think it's brilliant. He's like, I was hurt the most. And I almost feel like the deeper the pain, the longer it takes. So he said after some of those conversations, he was able to forgive his dad half. Fair enough. And a few months ago, he was in the shower. And I don't know about you, but that's where all the best thinking happens. Um, and he just got to this moment where it's like, I'm done. I'm tired. I can't hold this anymore. I don't want to do it. And he got out of the shower and he went about his day. And then he said it wasn't until like two months later um, where something was brought up or, or something happened that usually triggered him and, and would bring him back to those feelings of anger. And uh, he's like, I wasn't angry. I didn't feel it. I think I forgave my dad. I think I was healed from that. And he ends kind of his, his talk, and he just kept saying over and over again, you have no idea what it feels like to be free. I'm free. I'm free. And then he said, Happy Easter, Jenna. It's very sweet. And I think Marcel just, he captures what's that, what that is like for so many of us who have to forgive big things. Um, forgiveness is a gift from God. The scriptures say that only God can forgive. And I wonder if that's true, even if you feel like you know God or not, that anytime forgiveness is happening, God is doing something. I wonder if anyone here is tired of carrying a wound. I wonder if anyone here this morning needs forgiveness from God, from someone else, I wonder if anyone here needs to forgive someone. And so for this next time of our service, um, we're going to spend some time in silence uh, to listen. We sort of believe that uh, there are things the preacher forgot to say. Um, so we like to open it up for God to speak to you. Um, so I'd like to invite the band up. And what we'll do is we'll take a few minutes in silence and then the rest of our time will be spent responding. Um, during time of song, there will be uh, people available for prayer. If you find yourself uh, desiring that, we'd be honored to do that for you. So let me pray. God, thank you that our anger is safe in front of you. I ask that the things that you have stirred up in us, that you would be faithful to complete them, that you would give us strength and energy and a will to move towards the things that you might be inviting us to this morning. Thank you that you loved us enough to not be okay with a broken relationship, that you came for us, and that you want us to be healed and restored. Thank you that you have forgiven us. 
In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Forgiveness is not a light topic. May you go knowing that you are deeply loved, deeply forgiven, and you are made new. May we offer that to those around us. Grace and peace. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.